The Athletic. Producer Ben again, listeners, and this is the second part of our Galazzo two-parter on the life and times of Silvio Berlusconi, who died earlier this week. This podcast was recorded in March 2020, and it's all about the former owner of AC Milan's Bunga Bunga years. Gab Marcotti, James Horncastle and James Richardson have the full story. Yeah, that's right, listener. Today, we're back with part two of our Silvia Berlusconi story, putting the burlesque into Berlusconi. As Silvia moves from the most successful club owner of all time to a four-time Italian premier to the man who set the benchmark for scandals in office, at least until the last few years. The balls, the ballots, the bunga bunga coming up in Golazzo. Hello again, Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. And hello again, James Horncastle. Hi. And off we go again with more fabulous tales of Silvia Berlusconi. To recap, in part one, we looked at how cruise ship crooning's loss, Gabriele, was football's gain as smiling Silvia Berlusconi made a meteoric... cruise ship crooners. Yeah, yeah. As Silvia Berlusconi made a meteoric rise, a business which led to him buying Milan and making them the best team on the planet and him the dream owner. Between the years of 86 to 96, that decade, 17 trophies, five titles, four Super Cups, four European titles, three European Super Cups, two World Club Cups, and a succession of the world's greatest stars coming through their doors. In 94, things began to change James Horncastle. Is that because he went into politics, James? Boom. That is what happened. That is what happened. In January 1994, Silvio Berlusconi entered politics. He took the field. He took the field. He launched a football-themed political party. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, football-themed in the sense that it borrowed the terminology of football. Is it? Yeah, in the way that they... Italia? Forza? I mean, I I, I know that this has been... Look, I know I'm not a particular fan of the guy. Yeah. But this idea that was peddled by certain outlets that like, oh, look, he bought a football club and then he... You know, use the same thing that he used to befuddle the idiot football fans to befuddle the idiot voters using the same terminology. I don't know. Like, you don't think that there's any coincidence behind him using the name Forza Italia, but, which was essentially a, a terrorist chant for the Nazionale, and the fact that the way he described candidates as well you was. You know, what? I've I've never ever uh-huh. heard. You know, you've been to a lot of football matches in Italy. Yeah. I've never ever heard anybody chant Forza, Forza Italia. Italia on the terraces ever. No. Ever. But, ever. No, but equally. No, I, I heard them chant Italia Ita, over and over yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a fair point. But it, it, it's the name of the team. I, I don't get this. It's I, almost I, too much of a cliche chant for anyone to actually use, but it's very much Forza Roma, Forza Milan, Forza, Forza name, insert the name of your club here. But this is cool. Italia. I think it's fair to say, though, while you may question that suggestion that it was couched in football terminology, that Silvio certainly managed to... Uh, I will help you out of your own little corner by mentioning the fact that the official club magazine back in younger listeners, there used to be these things called magazines, which were sort of glossy bits of paper with words on them and pictures. And Milan's one was called? Forza Milan. Yeah. And? Juventus was called? Urra Juventus. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't help. (laughs) But within the Milan sphere, it worked. And Berlusconi's genius was all over this uh, in terms of 
the selection of the style of the party, even down to the music. And what music, James? C'è un grande sogno che vive in noi, siamo la gente della libertà. Presidente, siamo con te, meno male che Silvio c'è. Wow, that one of the later themes for his Forza Italia party. Presidente, siamo con te, meno male che Silvio c'è. <laughs> President, we're with you. What a good thing that you're here. Well, everyone was thinking it. For all the people who criticise him, I think he lived his best life. So far, yeah. No, he, he certainly had a lot of fun. And he is, this is one of the things about him, a tremendously charming yeah. man. That's why he's been able to do all the things that he's done. There's an amazing scene in um, in Lord. Have you seen that? The Sorrentino film about Berlusconi? The latter years of Berlusconi where he's sort of, you know, in his 70s and uh, he just decides, there's a scene where he decides one day, one night, I think he's on his own, that he's going to call up um, someone and try and sell them something, see if he's still got it. And he's still got it. I bet he has. And Berlusconi was able to enjoy this meteoric rise. Uh, What was it, six months between him launching the... The, the party to actually being elected as the Italian premier, partly to the fact that he had all these TV stations and could run endless adverts, whether paid or, or, or just kind of him appearing on shows, but also to the fact that he was regarded as an Italian who was successful, incredibly successful, who had the Midas touch, both domestically and internationally. And a lot of the reason for that image was the fact that he owned Milan and Milan won everything. It was also down to the times and the fact that the Italian politics had had an enormous scandal, mm. uh, which had seen an enormous quantity of people, including your fellow member of the bald fraternity we mentioned <laughs> in the last episode, Bettino Craxi, and Berlusconi's yeah. old mate. Same space. Space. If we ever get organized, you <laughs> exactly. guys better watch out. Yeah. Um, they, they, you know, all these people were arrested, indicted, right. and so on. And so what you had all of a sudden, more they said before in the last episode, about mm. you had sort of three main parties, mm. and you had two of them, Christian Democratic Party and Socialist Party that were completely wiped out, which is why the Communist Party made enormous gains, as did initially a party which now has come back called the Northern League or the Lega Nord Party. Berlusconi wasn't comfortable with either option. A lot of people weren't comfortable with either option. And the fact that until that point, Berlusconi had, I don't think he'd ever expressed a political opinion other than some sort of vague anti-Soviet Union thing. But yeah, they eat babies. He, he, they, <laughs> but he came in. I don't think it was. Just, it was just his success as an right. entrepreneur and so on that people said, "Oh, he's got to be clean." It was also the fact that he was seeing somebody who was extraneous from the political system, which, right. as we would later find out, might not have been the case. Well, indeed, it's funny. It gave him the opportunity, but it also gave him the motive to enter politics because he's, he's, he's supposed to have admitted this that if he hadn't entered politics, that he might have himself ended up behind bars. I mean, there's two threads here. He had been helped by political friends along the way. And a lot of those political allies were now either under investigation or under arrest or, or in the case of Craxi, fleeing to Tunisia. He was also going to be under investigation himself. And the promise of immunity that election would bring would prove to be extremely useful. In his case, this related to the um, the funding of uh, the Fininvest donations to the Socialist Party yeah. that was uncovered when uh, Socialist MP Mario Chiesa was arrested while taking a 7 million lira bribe. No relation to Enrico or Federico. <laughs> yes. It's a good point to make. In the interest of 
Par Condicio, which yeah. of course is a uh, subject very close to uh, Berlusconi's heart. Yeah. We should point out that I think what he would say yeah. is that you had this incredible situation where all these government officials and politicians were being thrown behind bars and prosecutors in Italy were becoming extremely aggressive. And there was such a hunger from the population to get rid of these corrupt politicians that they were happy to give to drain prosecutors- the swamp. To drain the swamp. They were happy to give prosecutors incredible powers where people were kind of like, you know, thrown uh, behind bars. Some people committed suicide, were later found out to be innocent and so on. But Uskoni's defense would be, this is prosecutor overreach. And I knew that they were going to come after me because I was somebody coming in from the outside and I cared about principles of balance and fairness and whatever. I mean, make of that yeah, what you will, right. but I'm saying is this would be his side of the story, that yeah. judges and prosecutors in Italy are out of control. Also because, and he does have a point here, we have the most diabolically slow legal system in the history of the universe. Yeah. Like, Calciopoli is still going through appeal. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, just about. <laughs> and and the fact is that, you know, if you get accused, yeah. you're almost effectively deemed guilty until you can prove yourself innocent and until your your trial exhausts itself and trials can last 15 to 20 years but and it ties up time side, and energy. You can also benefit from this because if you're found guilty as indeed he was of bribing senators, then the statute of limitations may have passed because the trial took so long and you walk away from it. Exactly. And this is why, as I often say, who benefits from this? It's the lawyers. If now, you're really interested in this period and you want to see a fictionalized, dramatized version of it, there was a series that was on Sky Atlantic, which was... 1992, 1993, and 1994, which is all about this kind of Berlusconi's rise to power, you know, how he kind of extricated himself from these kind of problems. It's good. It's decent. All right. So there were lots of reasons for him to get into politics, and he does so tremendously successfully, and he uses a lot of those football terminologies. There's also an interesting symmetry between his results with Milan and his election results. When Milan do well, he tends to do well. Berlusconi was never shy of using his success on the field to add to his allure as a politician. The 2007 example when Milan won the Champions League against Liverpool and afterwards Berlusconi on the political show Porta Porta uh, brings out a whole series of diagrams of corner schemes, schemes for taking corners that he claims that he has basically drawn out himself and given to Carlo Ancelotti and which he credits for them having the, uh, the victory over Liverpool in Athens. And that's not all, is it, James? No, because Silvio, you know, harking back to his days as coach of Edel Nord, um, you know, takes Pippo Inzaghi to one side and gives him the kind of one-on-one -on -one instructions that you need. He just went through all the tendencies of those Liverpool defenders, you know, what their strengths were, what their weaknesses are. And of course, Pippo took full advantage and credited Silvio with um, particularly scoring that goal with his backside. <laughs> Um, <laughs> in that game. That is Silvio there in the mix zone post-match uh, explaining how he'd uh, helped the players to that victory. You were there, Gab. Yeah, I, I remember being there in uh, in Athens with uh, with our mutual friend, uh, Raf Honigstein. Mm. I was there and as well. Did you see me? <laughs> you didn't make much of an impression. I was, but, I was literally the MC that evening out on the pitch. Oh, that's right. Yes, you yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But the other thing that I noted, and I point out to Raf because I'd heard stories of this, but I I'd, I'd never been that close to Berlusconi to, to notice this, was, and again, I don't sort of mock somebody gratuitously, the shoes with the lifts, he has these enormous heels, right. which to, to make him seem taller. And then this became like 
a big issue to do with his height, which is, you know, some of the very many petty ways that people attacked him for the fact that he's short. But it's something that he took to heart. And in typical Berlusconi fashion, he did something about it by wearing those shoes with, with lifts. But it's when you see him in person, right. it's it's absolutely striking. Okay. Maybe not for you, because you're about the same size, but for you, James, and most <laughs> average size listeners. So uh, Berlusconi was clearly pretty hands-on with the 2007 Coppa de Campione, mm. was noted more from 94 onwards from the distance he took from the club. Because of his involvement in politics, people like uh, Baresi would say that he virtually didn't speak to uh, El Presidente for the next 10 years or so. Politics distracted. Berlusconi gave him a new focus, but also gave him a new set of rules almost by which to live. It curbed his spending, I think, arguably in, in the 90s. It actually saw him embark on a flurry of, of spending around 2001 when there was an election campaign going on. And he, he tied in Milan's new campaign of acquisitions in with the kind of a notion that he was the man who was going to get things done, restore Milan to greatness, and he could do it to Italy. I mean, there are all well. these kind of stories uh, and you know, what truth there is to them, you know, they still get reported, which are, oh, we've got some kind of by-election going on or something like that, and it's January, and oh, we're going to sign Mario Balotelli, so right. turn out, uh, Milan fans. Or, for example, in, in Naples, I remember one time, Milan were very close, apparently, to signing Mario Kamsik for $45 million. Naples was going to swing one way politically or what, and Berlusconi all of a sudden just withdraws from signing Marek Hamsik because, you know, he respects the Neapolitan people yeah. and how important... Well, the Kakar sale as well. Wasn't the Kakar sale the fact that they didn't let him go to Man City, but then the next summer let him go to Real Madrid for a greatly reduced price? But the fact that the Kakar sale in, in, in uh, when was it, January, would have been just before the European elections and could have proved catastrophic to the Berlusconi image. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly, look, uh, if you, this is what, you know, we've brought this word before, dietrologia, right? So, like, what's behind it? Is there some big plot? Again, I'm going to try to be fair to the guy, but you would probably say that, and, and this is one of the things I think is really interesting about Berlusconi, is when he bought Milan to begin with, a lot of the people around him supposedly said, this is a stupid idea, because we know you're a Milan fan, but... When you go and you sell advertising, when when you you know run your TV channels, your your cinemas, the people who go are fans of other clubs. Now you are so readily identifying with Milan, they will probably hate you because and they'll stop buying your products. He was able to turn it around. The fact that he was able to get the admiration, I think, of a lot of other fans, you know, within a within a football sphere, he realized that if you do something well, even if you're a baddie or a rival. You will get that admiration and they will trust you with something else. To make an analogy here, it's as if when Sir Alex Ferguson was at his peak, would you have trusted him to look after your money? Would you have trusted him to be your local MP? And I think the answer is many people, fans of other clubs who might have hated Sir Alex otherwise, probably would say, uh, yeah, I probably would. And, and that's what it was. The guy who was successful in one field was able to convince people that he was going to be successful in other fields. And it didn't matter that in the previous field, he was a great rival. Mm. How do you think being in politics affected his presidency of Milan? To be honest, knowing what we know now about, especially over the last few years, and especially over the way that Milan's business was conducted, I don't think that, I think he gained a tremendous competitive advantage at first because they were tremendous innovators and he had a lot of money uh, to put in there. 
once he went into politics, I don't know if having him hanging around more and giving more advice on set pieces to Carlo Ancelotti would have necessarily made Milan a better team. I think once he was a public figure, he always put out the issue that, well, for example, there was there was a year when Mediaset, his TV company, said to lay people off, and he's like, "Well, you know, we can't spend more money on the football club in a year where we have to lay people off." Right. I buy that only to a point. Campaigning in two thousand one to become prime minister again, Berlusconi fired uh, Alberto Zaccaroni, the Milan manager, on TV, and then announced, just like fifteen years ago, I've given the go ahead to buy the best in the world, and he was as good as his word. Uh, Ricosta coming in from Fiorentina, Pippo Inzaghi. Uh, from Juventus, both for pretty astronomic sums. And with Carlo Ancelotti on the bench, you get the kind of last great cycle. Allegri brings a, t- a, a title a little bit later on, but that An- Ancelotti-Milan is, we, is a special one. It is a special one. We should point out, though, that at that point, 2001, it wasn't Carlo Ancelotti on the bench. He it's had Fatih. It was Fatih Terim. Mm. So even within this, right, he... He's like, okay, but I have this Turkish manager on the bench and not Carlo Ancelotti because I'm still not... Is Carlo Ancelotti good or is he too much of a loser. Is he a pig, the way the Juventus fans say? So there's always this kind of slight rewriting of history, which Berlusconi, like most politicians, probably like most readers, uh, most leaders rather, does does better than most. It comes instinctive to him. It's not that the things you say are untrue. It's that you believe them to be true. Post-2011, that Scudetto that they win with Allegri, with uh, Ibrahimovic and Thiago Silva... It's pretty much one-way traffic. It's it's all downhill, and none of the decisions are really helping Milan. No, because uh, that structure that we've kind of eulogised throughout these two podcasts begins to crack and disintegrate. You have A, Berlusconi's eldest daughter Marina running things at Fininvest and saying, this, this club is burning a hole in our pockets. Um, it's time to scale back. And so they start doing that. And obviously they're no longer competitive for the league, but Max Allegri does a quite amazing job to keep the club in the Champions League in the year in which they sell off star players. The ones that we mentioned from the 2007 Triumph retire. Um, And they don't realise that Allegri kind of was the glue that kept it all together. And I saw Allegri in December and we were talking about his next move and how important what's behind you is in terms of management, sporting director, technical director and whatnot. And all of a sudden you have Barbara Berlusconi coming in sharing the power with Adriano Galliani and everything becoming that little bit more confused. Mm. Pato's um, girlfriend. Pat, well, Pato's girlfriend at the time. Mm. Um, yeah. And um, they haven't been able to get back since um, because, you know, Berlusconi made decisions to try and take the biggest offer he could get, right. um, which often well, wasn't that, real. He had some, <laughs> he had some for, for a man renowned for his acumen in picking managers, he made some questionable calls. Well, they were, they were calls on the cheap. No, right. because he could basically... and well, um, He could have had Maurizio Sarri, yeah. fresh from his Empoli success. But he was too left-wing. He was too left-wing, so he took Sinisa Mihalovic. Mi- Mihalovic, to be fair, gets him to the Coppa Italia final, but never gets to play it because he fires him and brings in Christian Brocchi. Yeah, he promoted Brocchi from the youth team. Yeah. Um, Brocchi is now in charge of his new club, Monza. Right. Um, but yeah, he went through Clarence Seedorf, remember? Mm. Um, Pippo Inzaghi. There's that incredible uh, video of Berlusconi in the dressing room. Vinzaghi there basically telling him how to give a team talk. Undermines him uh, greatly. Um, 
It's marketing to some degree. I mean, it's funny because as we taped this, I was outside talking to, I don't know what his title is, but he works here and is very important, um, and who's a big WWE fan. And he talked about how WWE brought back Bill Goldberg, and he's now, as we tape this, a WWE champion. This is essentially what he was doing at the end, recycling one Milan legend after the other, regardless of whether they had any interest or any medal mm. to go and, and, and hold these roles. And it's interesting to know the one guy who never came back was possibly the biggest or second biggest Milan guy of all, Paolo Maldini. He always said no to coming back officially because, you know, he didn't want to come in an ambassadorial role. Some people say it's because of his relationship with the ultras when he left or whatever. But I think it was because he knew that this was a sinking ship and he didn't want to be used as some sort of fig leaf for an organization that at that time, you know, simply wasn't built to compete. Mm. Well, of course, while all of this was going on at Milan, Silvio also had one or two other things to think about. Yep, Flavor Flav there with Unga Bunga Bunga. It would probably uh, comfort Sylvia Berlusconi to know, uh, as a man striving to excel as he is, that he defined really being a scandalous leader. <laughs> when entering politics, he promised to sell his TV network and newspapers, etc., because it would be a clear conflict of interest. Didn't do that. What did he do? The very first thing he did was pass a law that shortened statutory terms for tax fraud, which... Entirely coincidentally, he was under investigation for at the time. Coincidence, James. He was investigated in over 40 different inquests in less than two years. I think overall there's more than 50 of them, including bribery of judges, perjury, abuse of office, defamation, bribery of senators, uh, soliciting minors for sex, the Ruby Rubacuori uh, case. Ruby heart stealer. Yeah, which is where the bunga bunga thing comes from. Tell us about bunga bunga, James. Well, I'm trying to remember... How- where this originates from, isn't it from Libya? Well, there is a story that it's it's a phrase that Maha, Maha, uh, is it Muammar Gaddafi? Muammar yeah. Gaddafi. Thank you. <laughs> it was a phrase that he would use, but it it brought Berlusconi a newfound notoriety around the world. This all began at one of those infamous bunga bunga parties. Those famous festas bunga bunga. Bunga bunga sex parties. Presented comme aphrodisiac et un logo accrocheur. Bunga Bunga Band. Und seine berühmt-berüchtigten Bunga Bunga Partys. Bunga Bunga Party. Tell me more. It was hilarious, and yet also not, because at the heart of this, there was the uh, allegations of uh, soliciting minors for sex. Uh, the dancer, the um, Moroccan dancer, Karima El Marug, or as she was known, Ruby Rubacuori, Ruby Heartstealer, was 17 at the time when she was involved with these, in these events at Berlusconi's villa where... Her, herself, and various other girls, possibly with the premier, would perform a, a naked dance that I believe was the, the Bunga Bunga dance. She wasn't Dental. Hosni Bubarak's, um Yeah. Was it Goddaughter? No, she wasn't. No. And what, what does that refer to, James? Well, the, she was arrested for stealing around this time. And this is why I think it comes to light. So she's arrested for stealing. And all of a sudden, the police officers get a phone call from none other than Sylvia Berlusconi saying, release this girl. She's the Egyptian Premier's <laughs> yeah. niece, or something, yeah. niece, which she isn't. 
No, she's uh, from a completely different country. Right. She grew up in Italy, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and uh, it all begins to unravel, and the whole thing becomes a huge case, and a very serious case. Actually, one of the witnesses in this case uh, died in slightly unexplained circumstances uh, a couple of years afterwards. Berlusconi is originally uh, found guilty because uh, Ruby so was should, 17 so at the time. we should point out, because you're yeah. glossing over something, his dental hygienist. Do oh, you remember yeah. this? No. Nic- Nicole Minetti was also there. Ah, yeah. And, of course, she was... It was funny about her is she's half English uh, and half Italian. And she was basically continually interviewed. I remember on CNN, on the BBC and stuff. She basically became his spokesman at that point. And then later, I think she was elected to the regional Senate or something. He put her, you know, to show his gratitude. He just kind of put her and selected her as an MP. She is a freaking dental... Hygienist. Nothing wrong with being a dental hygienist. Right. Doesn't generally overlap with the government job. So uh, Berlusconi was found guilty for this and given seven years and thrown out of parliament, seven years in prison. Mm. Uh, but of course, he won on appeal. Well done to him. In fact, he has, so far at least, only ever been convicted of one thing, and that was a tax fraud conviction in a trial relating to uh, media sets, part of the Fininvest Empire's um, accounts back in the. We've seen 88 and 98. The verdict for that was uh, 2013. Because of his age, he was over 70 by the time the verdict came through. He didn't have to serve time. Instead, he did community service. Do you know what he did oh, for his community yeah. service? Uh, it was, a, was it an old people's it home? It was, yeah. yeah. The Sacra Familia nuns. Institute in <laughs> Cesano. Hmm? Yeah. Run by kindly nuns, as I recall. Is that right? Yeah. Where he would, I believe this is right, and stop me if I'm going too big on the crooning again, but he would basically play the piano and sing to the OAPs that were resident there. It was also funny. Wouldn't he be older yeah, than a lot of Yeah, that's the thing. He would have been the same age. But he's got so much energy inside. Though. Right. And with all of that, he still didn't get the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a harsh world we live in. It certainly is. One other mark against his name might have been the fact that there were these ongoing and unpleasant suggestions that he might have some links to organized crime. Mm, funny that, James. Mm. Yeah, I mean, apparently he took on this stable hand because, well, at the time... So he has in, a stable in, hand and gardener called Vittorio Mangano, who was? Uh, mafioso. Right. Yeah, um, and was kind of one of the point men for the, uh, the Sicilian mafia in Milan, you know, be it for bringing in drugs and... Uh, and all that kind of nefarious stuff. Um, and, yeah, he lived and worked on the Berlusconi estate. And, you know, it might have been surely for it, just for insurance in that the what, <laughs> 60s and 70s in that, you know, uh, wealthy industrialists were often being kidnapped. and or, or maybe it was just an act of benevolence. He was giving a, a felon a, a chance to establish a new start. Yeah, and he was very good with horses, apparently. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I think I know where that's heading. He also has his longtime number two, not in Milan, but overall. Marcello De Lutri. A guy named Marcello De Lutri, yeah. who was, I didn't realize this because I assumed he'd be out based on the fact that you don't like putting old people in still prison in Italy. But no, he's apparently still in prison. He was convicted of, of racketeering with the mafia and right. conspiracy with the mafia. And, and this guy was Berlusconi's number two. And co-founder of the Forza Italia political party. He's specifically with the uh, Sicilian mafia. Yeah, because he, um, you know, back in the day when he was growing up in Palermo, he used to be, uh, he also used to be a football coach, I think, for Bacigalupo or something. And yeah. the owner of Bacigalupo was a uh, a mobster. But so of course, you know, Delutri did not know that at the time. Of course, he couldn't have known that. Mm. Um, yeah, these these liaisons that he had, he didn't know they were so dangerous. In the interest of uh, Gabriele's par condicio, 
we should stress that Sylvia's never uh, been found guilty of any uh, mafia links mm. himself. Delutri, I think, had one of the great rare book collections oh, yeah? as well. Yeah, some insane first editions from yeah, many, many centuries. You're expecting some sort of you know, ignorant thug type, but apparently Delutri was some kind of art collector and a bit of an intellectual. In 2014, he, um, he fled to Lebanon. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, do you remember (laughs) On the road with Marcello de Lutri. Um, (laughs) The other thing about Berlusconi is at some point earlier in his ride, he was being blackmailed, and this came up in one of his his trials, and and he, he was being blackmailed by the mob who were trying to shake him down over his construction. And I think this speaks volumes of what Berlusconi was like, especially when he still had all his hair, that he really was pretty gung-ho and cocksure about himself. And he's on the phone with a friend of his, and they're laughing about the visit that he got from these two Sicilian mobsters, or maybe they weren't, maybe just other places in the South, and uh, who tried to shake him down, and the way they talked and so on. And then these guys, as a warning, set off a bomb outside his house, you know, didn't do any damage. And they're just like in hysterics laughing about, you know, these cartoonish weirdos setting off bombs and, you know, the 1930s are over and whatever. And yeah, and then which is it's kind of ironic knowing what we know now happened afterwards. Also, I mean, the government at the time had this, uh, I think, policy whereby, you know, if you were convicted of uh, association with the mafia or something in Sicily, they would just send you into internal exile. They would just send you to live in the north. Mm -hmm. Great idea. Yeah, send, you... <laughs> send them all to us. <laughs> well, to conclude then, I'll look at the Silvio Berlusconi story so far. After this, we'll talk about the departure from Milan and what he's up to now. Manchester City have just made history in Istanbul, a city that four months previously suffered a series of devastating earthquakes. In the build-up to this year's Champions League final, the Athletics' Adam Leventhal visited Turkey for a special two-part audio documentary looking at the impact of February's natural disaster on the country, its people and their football clubs. This is the Hatay Spore home dressing room and it really is a, a remarkable but also poignant scene because it's very much been suspended in time. After the the victory that evening, Christian Atsu obviously scored uh, the winning goal. That's where he would have been sat and got changed and, and then gone home. But all around as well, there is remnants of just a usual post-match um, from the, the wraps around players' shin pads to sock tape to post-match meal plates to tissues to bottles of water, fizzy drinks, uh, bananas over in the corner. It is pretty much as it would have been when they all left that night. And then obviously we know what happened afterwards. 
you can listen to football on Turkey's Fault Line for free. It's part of our new Go Deeper strand. Just search for The Athletic Go Deeper wherever you get your podcasts. Two thousand and seventeen, after a bizarre attempt to sell Milan to a Mr. B, a mysterious Asian businessman who had agreed to buy the club at a valuation of about a billion euros. You found someone more mysterious. Well, first of all, though, just to just to, the, the weird detail of that was that Mr. B was forever not coming up with the money, but what he was doing was paying the capara, the the series of down payments that you had to keep making in order to stay in the negotiation. And am I right in saying that he ended up sending Berlusconi something like 200 million euros for a transaction uh, that then went through? No. Maybe it was 100 million. No, I think I think we, I think you're confusing that with Mr. Lee. Oh, that was Lee did that. Yeah, it? because I, th- I think uh, Mr. B, yeah, B. Um he basically said, yes, I'm going to buy the club. Um, here's my good friend Nelio Lucas, who runs Doyen. Right. Let's go on a spending spree. And they spent loads and loads of money and then basically didn't buy the club. After Mr. B and his billion, and remember Victor Pablo Donna? Oh, yeah. He was sort of this strange figure that was kind of in between that then tried to buy other clubs. Pisa. Um, so, so basically, he agreed to sell the club for 540 million euros, uh, which is about half a billion pounds. It was a really pretty high valuation. Plus, on top of that, they had about 200 million worth of debt. So the club's valuation is $740 million, and you need to come up with $540 million in cash. And he sells it to this guy named Lee Yong Hong. And immediately, from day one, people start wondering, does this dude actually have any money? Because you go to China and you know all the different Chinese oligarchs and whatnot who own big corporations, and nobody really knows this guy. But somehow he comes up with $100 million down payment. Then he comes up with another hundred million, and then he borrows money from a company called Elliott Management, uh, who now, which is a hedge fund, who now own the club. And the really odd thing about this Mr. Lee is that he do, he spends tons of money while he's in charge of Milan, racks up more debt, violates financial fair play even more than Berlusconi and Galliani had done at the end of their tenure, and then at the end. Well, he's got to pay this money back to Elliot. Otherwise, he's going to, because he put up the club as collateral, otherwise he's going to lose control of the club and lose, obviously, his down payment as well, which is only 200-odd million and change. And then what does he do? He has the opportunity to go and sell it to other people, like Rocco Comiso, who now lives in Fiorentina. It was a link with, with another, group in, another group in the U.S., another group out of the Middle East. And he doesn't sell it. He'd rather just go bankrupt and lose the money he's already put into the club which is very, very odd and struck a lot yeah. of people mm. in But it was a drop in the ocean for him, just loose change. Um, There's two schools of thought on this. I will say one version. <laughs> I know the other version, the one that you were going to allude to. The One of them is that Leong Hong didn't actually have all this money. He had mm-hmm. some money, and then he went around to try to collect money from different rich people in China. Chinese government says, no, we're, let's pass laws against... Capital. capital flight, we don't like you investing money abroad and whatever else. Maybe some of the people who were giving him money to reinvest were maybe people who the provenance of money might have been a bit dubious, whatever. And in the end, they said, no, Lee, go away. We're not giving you any money. Mm. And all of a sudden, the guy is stuck. So wow. that is one version of events. The other version of events is... Needn't concern us right now. But the fact <laughs> is that Berlusconi <laughs> ended up receiving... Uh, 
200 million or so clean euros. No, he didn't. He received 530 yeah. million uh, 500, clean euros because right. remember, the balance, Lee borrowed it from Elliot right. and then gave it to Berlusconi. Yeah, Berlusconi so, sold well. He did very well out of it. I mean, very well. And yeah, I mean, luckily, I think he follows you, Gab, as well, but Leon Hong is on Twitter now and he's talking and he follows Milan games. Him. I mean, he gave an interview yesterday. Um, in which you know he says it's, it's it's kind of it's a shame what's happening at Milan at the moment with this yeah sort of war going on between mm. Svone Boban and and Ivan Gazidis you know it's it shows terrible management says the man who um, the skint man who over, oh, overextended himself and led the club to go <laughs> nearly out of business. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> David Hanley or whatever. The hell oh yeah, is. Is yeah, yeah. The, I don't know where where because the guy with the giant head. Yeah. While looks this, like a bobble doll. While this is going on at his former club, Berlusconi has walked away. He sold the family jewels, mm. he uh, put it. Uh, he was banned from holding public office due to his criminal record, but continued with politics, uh, fortunately. Still leading... allowed to invest into football as well. Yeah. Well, so first of all, he was at the head of the Forza Italia party, the remodeled Forza Italia party, which enjoyed some electrical, electoral success in 2018. But a lot less than they'd ever had before. A lot less than before. Uh, in 2019, decline. with his ban now lifted of holding public office, he became a member of the European Parliament at the age of 82, everybody. And he celebrated that year by buying... Monza, down in Serie C. His brother Paolo is the official president. Yeah. And Adriano Galliani, his long-standing advisor, uh, and indeed long-time, lifelong Monza fan, is the chairman and apparently running the club uh, well, very well. They're top of Serie C, I think, are they not? Yeah, they, I mean, they, big. they have a team that would probably win Serie B. So... Managed yeah. by Christian Brocky. Christian Brocky, mm. um, with you know players who've got no tattoos, whose hair's all nice and combed, and right. uh, all part of the kind of Berlusconi etiquette for successful yeah. footballers. Yeah, and uh, you know Milan and Inter, yeah, they can they can leave San Siro, they can build their own home. Monza will play at San Siro. Mm. That was a promise that uh, Silvio Berlusconi made, and which is impossible. If he left the, the glorious Brianteo Stadium, mm. which you know has, has been Monza's home since it was built. Right. Well, I wouldn't rule out Monza playing at San Siro at some stage in the near future. They're only, they're only a, a, a division away. Well, he thinks his Monza team would beat this Milan team. And he may well be right. He himself, now 84, I think. He's looking great, though. He's looking exactly the same as he has done I mean, for about 20 years. He's got that mausoleum in his, um, on his, on his estate. <laughs> no. Which apparently has this, like, superpower kind of electrical generator in there. Oh, really? Which, you know, may, I think was installed because one day they thought it would, you know, there'd be some kind of, I don't know, regenerating kind of like a technology right. which would allow him to live for another Well, maybe there years. has been. And what we're seeing is second, third or fourth generation. But it's going to I be think, yeah. It is incredible. He's 84. He looks, as you say, almost the same. He's only recently shaken off allegations about wild sex parties. And in fact, one of Monza's recent events, the Christmas event, did you mm. see this? When he gave this speech where he says... Uh, there's these rumours going around that I s still screw six times a night. It's actually only three because then nowadays I fall asleep. Yeah, I mean, this 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 does play in with part of his legend as being um, a bomber 
which yeah. is, <laughs> I guess, Italian for a bit of a lad. Well, indeed. Um, Were you suggesting before when yeah. you when you said with the cryogenics and stuff that this might not be the same Berlusconi that's been I'm around? Just saying. Is it a little bit like Arrigo Sacchi's dogs? <laughs> yeah, very possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think Milan Lab, which we don't hear about anymore, yeah. has just been dismantled and, and rebuilt in, in Art Corea now. So 31 years he was in charge of Milan, 29 titles, seven Ballon d'Ors were there in his time. It's a funny thing, though, and we talked a little bit about his charm, but also his confidence that a man who has represented in many ways, Gavin, as an Italian, you would have the view on this rather than me, but a negative thing about Italy, a negative thing about Italy's political system, a neg- negative thing about the justice system, still remains a figure who we'd probably all like to see do really well with Monza. Yeah, I, look, fundamentally, and you know, people have compared him to to other people, to to, to others. This is a guy who's not ideological in the sense that you know, so somebody made the point to me once that had Berlusconi somehow been created in the old Soviet Union, for example, you know, um, had he been around sort of after, you know, Yeltsin's rise, he might have been the Communist Party guy who tried to bring people back to values. He represents a kind of idealized Italian center. People have painted him as far right. People have he says, said those things about communism. He's certainly been in alliances with far right. He certainly has, but yeah. he was also more than willing to make alliances to, with with the left, you know, in exchange for <laughs> ending the investigations against him. I, it's this idea, though, that he is somebody who most people don't like the idea of him in power and the way he stayed in power and the way he built his empire. Most people have this have this sense of him that um, as, as as somebody who's well, he's still fun. He's still a good guy. I mean, I would argue that leaving aside the issues with his with with justice and whatever, he's made so many spectacularly bad and stupid decisions. Whether whether in football by keeping some of the same people around for a long right. time. There's a man who now works at Barcelona who we haven't mentioned and shouldn't mention. Um, but also that if it, for all his success and yeah. also, and also politically, like I remember when he came out and he's like, this is around 2000, 2001. He's like, well, China's never really going to amount to anything as an economic power. So rather than those, these investments we started making so we can improve trade with China, let's go and focus on improving trade with Russia and my friend Vladimir. Right. And yeah, guess whose economy's grown more in the last 15 years? Oh, savant, you know. So there's a whole bunch of other things to it. There's a certain fallibility right. to him, which I never quite know if he sees it or if he doesn't. For all of that, though, and this is something that we touched on, you touched on a lot to begin with, he in many ways laid the groundwork for modern football, not just in Italy with Saki and Pressing no. and the way that Milan changed, but the way that so many clubs around Europe now regard the standard way of operating, the professional way of running a football club. Yeah, without doubt. And also we've seen the real change of kind of style of owners now and that he felt he pulled out because he felt that he could no longer compete because yes, he's one of the if not the richest person in Italy, but he's not a state. He's not Italy in the way that Abu Dhabi and uh you know, in terms of yeah, you know, we see all these in Qatar in that in that sense. So he realized that uh, rather than yes, domestic success was important continental success being big in Europe mm. I mean that in, in many respects I think is where they differ from Juventus in being the club that has won seven European titles 
and only 18 league titles compared with however many the Agnellis want to count at Juventus <laughs> as being, what, 30-whatever. And there are two uh, European titles. Yeah. But well, there you go. I, yeah, I think James, you know, and, you know, while people have been mocking, we've like it, he saw the future in the late 80s, and most of what's happening today was from Milan stores, tours around the world, commercial partnerships in other parts of the world. They were doing all this stuff 30 years ago, and I think that is what makes him unique. The reason it didn't continue and the reason he left Milan worse off, I think, is ultimately that he got distracted with his other stuff, with his day-to-day empire and obviously politics and maybe he had to and, and, and whatever. But it would be fascinating, not that I'm saying this would be cool, but if the Berlusconi of 30 years ago came back today, if he came back without the burden of the investigations and the politics and all these other things, if he came back, if you had the energy and drive and vision of that Berlusconi, of that 50-something mm. Berlusconi today, what would he do to football? All right. Pier Silvio is standing by. That's where we conclude our look at the extraordinary life so far of Silvio Berlusconi. Remember, if you've enjoyed this show, there's, there's a whole bunch of other Golazzi out there on a wide variety of classic Italian football topics. Many thanks to James Horncastle and Gabriele Marcotti. We'll be back soon with more retro delights from the wonderful world of Serie A. Until then, from all of us here, it's Arrivederci. The Athletic. <laughs>